Okay, pasa, Mufasa. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast, a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker, and today on the pod, we've got the scintillating, yet unassuming Doug Beerend, mycophile and independent journalist extraordinaire who's written with a special interest in science, technology, visual and interactive media, food, sustainability, and general subversiveness for platforms like Wired, Vice, Outside Magazine, and many more. Doug has also recently been minted a first-time author via his sensational debut book titled In Search of Mycotopia, Citizen Science, Fungi Fanatics, and the Untapped Potential of Mushrooms. In the book, which should be required reading for all mycopreneurs, Doug profiles how the emerging mycological vanguard is exploring, innovating, and advocating for fungi's capacity to remediate contaminated landscapes and waterways, provide food and medicine, and demonstrate how humans might live in equitable and sustainable accord with nature and with one another. In Search of Mycotopia profiles the oft-overlooked and misunderstood fungi kingdom and the potential which it holds for our future by way of colorful characters and communities of citizen scientists and microbe devotees working to turn the fungal fringe into a vital front in the effort to realize a better world. This is a book that for me, like any great work, inspires more questions than it answers. Is there a sweet spot between anarcho-mycology, which is a term Doug will shortly unpack for us, and the filthy money tech bro fungi capitalist practices demonstrated in the recent patent grabs and billion dollar IPOs we've seen in the space? Who is represented at the table and in the corporate boardrooms when the fungi pie is being divided into market shares? Who decides what effective micro-remediation practices look like and is the urge to solve climate-related problems with fungi innovation really just white savior complex and neo-colonialism masked and eco-altruism. And perhaps most importantly, how do we know that the virtuosic guitar playing showcased on Doug's Instagram is actually Doug playing and not some kind of black magic deep fake technology? All this and more is par for the course of this episode, which I am very proud of. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, Doug Beerend, welcome to the Mycopreneur podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. So I recently had a chance to read In Search of Mycotopia, which was published in March 2021. And quite frankly, I've been waiting for a number of years for someone to write this book. And lo and behold, you've done it. So I feel there's some overlap between In Search of Mycotopia and the thesis of this podcast, which is people solving problems with mushrooms. And I think a focal point in your book re revolves around not viewing fungi and fungi-related innovation as a get-out-of-jail-free card for humanity and the climate crisis, malevolent consumption patterns, historical prejudices, etc., and instead fundamentally shifting our worldview as a species away from one of extraction and towards one of decolonization and right relationship with nature. So, Doug, where is the line between extractive enterprise and regenerative design? Oh, well, I mean, I, I couldn't have put it better myself. I think that's really the sort of fundamental thesis I was working from or arrived at, I guess. Um, you know, it's called In Search of Mycotopia because I had heard about all these solutions that were being uh, unveiled and explored and, and, and the utopian vision that seems to accompany that conversation. And I went looking for that. And uh, I think I arrived at a conclusion that, yeah, there is a distinction there to be drawn. You know, I think all those innovations are, I mean, we're talking about, Microremediation. We're talking about textiles and materials, um, food uh, security, medicinal sovereignty. You know, um, all sorts of companies emerging in these spaces that um, in the, providing opportunities for people to meet their needs and also, you know, create new markets. And I think at the point where the second part of that um, takes over and it becomes a, a cash grab or a um, just another extractive practice that you know denies access to medicines to the same communities that are denied access to medicine today or you know for example or you know uh, prices people out of you know participation in these emerging economies I, I see grounds for just an echo of the same dynamics that have created many of the problems we're hoping to see solved, you know, not just by mushrooms, but I think mushrooms have taken a sort of save the world role in the conversation lately. And um, yeah, I think, I think part of what I was hoping to communicate is that if they're teaching us something, it's probably that that system, that broader system of extractive um, inequitable 
uh, I'll say capitalism uh, is is maybe not the mushrooms don't and fungi don't seem to live uh, according to those principles and they haven't lasted for millions upon millions of years in the ecosystem uh, by destroying the basis of their survival and and you know winning out over their neighbors they've built reciprocal relationships and so uh you know that's a broad stroke but i i think it kind of sums up sort of the distinction that i i came to to see um you know i didn't talk to many people who were just looking to like corner the market um but that's happening and uh, i i saw a lot of communities forming that were trying to build circular and reciprocal and local, you know, bound economies that circulate value rather than extract them. And, and maybe that's the, the most succinct way to put the distinction as I see it. Awesome. And one of the reasons I love doing this podcast and engaging people like you is there's so many nuances to this dialogue and uh, contours and they haven't really been fully formed, right? They're kind of fluid and ongoing and there's a lot of room for this conversation. And I think we're gonna unpack some more nuances today. So, for example, there's a section of In Search of Mycotopia related to an organization using oyster mushrooms, I believe, to clean up oil spills in the Amazon. I've been following some of that work with mycoremediation, and one of the individual perspectives offered in relation to this is that there's a, quote, white savior complex at play in this scenario, whereby the white foreign fungi innovators attempt to literally colonize Amazonian lands with oyster mushroom mycelium and restore environmental integrity to the local ecosystem. I mentioned this to a friend, and his response was, is that such a a bad thing if it works i'm curious about if if something works is that a mm. is that a wrong place to come from uh well i mean yeah there's there's a lot to unpack there uh you know i i would my first response would would be to question who's going to determine whether it worked you know and who sets that um that standard and you know in that instance it was i think meant more as like a metaphor or a, an analogy than as like a, a sign that you know here we are colonizing, you know, just like the mushrooms or something like that. Um, it's probably more okay, micro renewal. That's that was via the micro renewal project. So um, they aren't working exclusively with oyster uh, mushrooms, but oyster mushrooms are sort of the like pre preeminent um, remediator, you know, uh, like Pleurotus uh, genus is, is the most kind of uh, widely used and, and deeply researched. And it's become kind of the like go to for these sorts of projects and and even in that like example there's there's signs of the same sort of like economic drivers you know it, it's been researched it's been established and it's sort of just accepted as like the species that you use um and it has come at the expense of research into other areas and and it becomes a matter of like what can a company that's seeking to remediate a landscape you know count on economically um and do feasibly in the context of ecuador which is like one of the poorest places i mean the part that i was was the, like one of the poorest places in that country um and it's where a lot of oil was spilled by uh formerly texaco uh now chevron and you know they've been trying to do this stuff for years and they're coming up against a lot of the same kind of blocks that um you know prevent other resources from getting into that area and so i think what they're talking about like in, in saying like as far as the distinction of working versus not working like it probably works at some level to introduce these fungal species into various contaminants and they can make that work in controlled and limited you know scenarios but when you're facing uh the a problem of the scale uh in the, that you face in the ecuadorian amazon like your problems are not just like how can we get as much pleurotus fungus into this landscape as possible which is sort of the only path forward i mean it's a reductive way to put it but it's like basically the like the argument like we just need to find the the right strains and species and deploy them at massive scale if you're hoping to you know really utilize them to to uh, remediate that kind of uh, contamination on the flip side and, and what i ended up focusing on in that section um was a project to do uh, what i sort of loosely termed uh, social remediation um it was conducted by a uh, led by a person named lexi groper who's um who was formerly of the micro renewal project and I think became kind of frustrated with the the narrow view of of the problem and the solution alike and how it was kind of contained within a capitalist framework of like we need to find you know the right tools here and then build the business proposition and work with the the remediating you know uh contractors that that can make this happen and she ended up focusing more on like 
how do we get the people who live on this land to actually recognize what healthy soil looks like, you know, and to develop, to, to rebuild a relationship with a broken landscape? Because we're talking about, you know, decades of contamination that has really affected agriculture there and people who haven't seen healthy soil. And so to me, the, the distinction that you're pointing to is one of like, are we coming in to fix a problem irrespective of the nuances in that area and the, and the lived experiences that we'll be dealing with and, and the economic realities, like they can't afford the kinds of solutions that, you know, mass microremediation really kind of represents at this point. Uh, and on the flip side of that, you know, maybe the solutions are more rooted in developing uh, and deepening relationship and, and sensitivity to the landscape and, you know, starting from there. Um, so, you know, in that, when you're looking at it from that lens, microremediation just becomes part of that project and it's not sort of at the forefront, um, which I think ends up serving, you know, a narrower set of interests than the people who live on in these places that we hope to see. Um, decontaminated. I hope that makes sense. As a, it makes uh, it makes so much sense, and I'm pretty deeply embedded in a sort of parallel scenario because my wife and I live in Chiapas, Mexico, mm. and you know there's the legacy of the Zapatistas and a heavy indigenous presence, but also Coca-Cola has a massive presence here, and there's all kinds of issues with water rights related to Coca-Cola, and I've been very fascinated at sort of my positioning of like where where I am, and I have relationships in the local communities, and also with you know capitalists down here, people who are, are expats who are running operations. And I just kind of occupy this middle ground of like not really knowing exactly the best way to proceed because there's so many stakeholders in the situation and whatnot. Um, but of course, I am very sensitive to and, and respectful of the local indigenous population who I have great reverence for, especially their mycological wisdom, which they mm. possess a bounty of. So this idea of extraction and the capitalist framework as it applies to the world of mushroom innovation and technology, it's fascinating to me because I believe a lot of the collective desire to, uh, to extricate ourselves from this overtly capitalist framework and to live in fully autonomous, self-sustaining communities that are off-grid, driven by trade and barter <laughs> economies, et cetera. It's an oversimplification maybe, but it's nonetheless one that I've frequently encountered in my conversations with people. And maybe to me, this is almost a form of magical thinking that you can extract yourself from this capitalist framework. And looking at history and in my extensive travels around the world, I've lived in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, I've lived in Kathmandu, San Francisco Bay Area for five years. I don't really see a lot of evidence for any kind of meaningful and timely shift away from these hierarchical systems of power and top-down decision-making. Um, I see potential for transformation of our current economic worldview. I certainly advocate at the individual and micro levels for people to opt out of the status quo to the extent it's possible for them. And, and that's where I want to introduce the term anarcho-mycologist, which I, I first encountered in your book, one who disrupts the capitalist chain by helping communities grow and utilize mushrooms is one definition. Um, I'm just curious if you see a sweet spot between anarcho-mycology and living in off-grid, sustainable communities and decentralized networks and this dominant, overtly capitalist-oriented position of what we'll call tech bro fungi capitalism. I like that term. <laughs> I think that's that's got legs. Um, yeah, I, yeah, and I might have been a bit flippant in using uh, the term anarcho there because uh, it's a, it's a political ideology at the end of the day, or maybe the sort of negation of it, uh, a political ideology. But it's um, not necessarily what people in that space adhere to. You know, they're not all anarchists. It's a sort of apolitical space, actually, in a lot of ways, is what I found. But that that person that you're referring to, Olga, um, you know, when I first encountered her, it was to write an article about this mushroom company, uh, Smugtown, that she operates in uh, in uh, upstate New York, and uh, the, I think the headline was like, "This anti-capitalist mushroom company needs a business plan," <laughs> you know, and how how does that square? Um, and uh, you know, maybe unsurprisingly, I didn't come to a very satisfying answer because, like you say. The status quo is what it is, and this this dominant system it's it's global and and basically um, intractable, and you know that's not to say that uh, there isn't even a role for it in in uh, approaching those other ends that you're talking about. Um, I think of companies that are like developing these myco leathers and building materials and stuff, and you know some of them have like defense contracts from what I understand, and certainly they've got VC funding, and you know that's the only way that they can achieve. The scale that's necessary, you know, under this system to 
make a dent in the you know supply chains that they they hope to see changed and it's sort of the tesla like logic i guess of like you appeal to the the highest end of the market and you it, it I don't, i'm tempted to say trickle down you know to the to the rest of, of society um in contrast i guess to, to my eyes or to my mind it's it's a matter of building the alternative and and i was sort of seeing that a lot in in these spaces you know one example i i uh, site in the book is uh, in New Mexico um, in the Pueblo communities of uh, the Tewa Women United, I think is the name of the group. And they are uh, originally a doula organization that um, you know worked with women on reproductive health. And they're in an area that's like deeply contaminated by um, the neighboring uh, nuclear lab <laughs> that, where the atomic bomb was first built. And uh, they the, you know, I'll, I'll leave readers to to get the whole story, but it, it doesn't. You know, spoiler alert: it doesn't end in their favor. They they were hoping to approach this contamination with microremediation. They came up against a pretty indifferent, um, you know, force in in the form of this lab and the state to which they're attached, and so they weren't able to get this uh, uh, proposal off the ground. And instead, they're they're kind of doing it themselves. And the the that section, the coda, is in a a permaculture garden that um, one of the Table Women United uh, leaders um, has established next to a, a parking lot where there's hydrocarbon contamination concerns, and um, they're just planting mycelium pillows or uh, these these uh, blocks of mycelium that they're hoping will uh, filter the the contaminants out of that uh, out of the water flows and be part of a, a food forest that they've established there. They're rematriating. That's the term they use. Uh, plants like amaranth, which have been, um, which were like targeted by colonial uh, forces, they, it's a whole history there. But um, to me, the the distinction there is like, do you try to reform the system or do you try to uh, build what you hope to see in its midst? And I think the two have to kind of go hand in hand. I think you have to work within the system that we have because that's just grounded reality. I have to breathe air. I live on Earth and I'm a human being. Um, I live in. 2021 on planet earth as well and capitalism is you know the closest thing to god that we have in my opinion you know it, it, it shapes life on this planet to an insane degree and i can't ignore that um but i don't think that that precludes people from uh trying to enact alternatives and build communities and and economies according to the values that they in, in many in, in the case of this book many have gleaned from observing fungi and, and developing a relationship to nature um, but it's a problem and it's a tension and I don't know that there's a, a clean solution to it. My, my gut tells me that an unsustainable system is unsustainable and it won't last. And so there's, there's reason to, to think that maybe just already having the wheels turning on alternative systems, uh, you know, in anticipation of that might be, you know, a, a smart thing to do. Um, but that's really the best answer I can think of for that. Sure. And as a quick aside, something that's coming up for me, I've been a little concerned about this like billionaire space race and this desire to colonize Mars and whatnot, because it almost like writes off what's happening here to me as yes. like, ah, we can't fix that. But like, maybe we can establish a new system on the red planet or whatnot, which I'm dubious of. But to go back to this sweet spot between capitalism and people who are sort of at the helm of the machinery of it and, and looking for repurposing or transformation. I really like Ecovative Design. I'm sure you're familiar with Ecovative out of New York. It was Trad Cotter's book, Microremediation, if you've ever read it, um, mm -hmm. that completely blew my mind when I read it a few years ago, because I already had a longstanding interest in fungi. But that, you know, learning about microremediation and like when he was working in Haiti after the earthquake and supply chains were disrupted to help them grow oyster mushrooms. We've had a mycopreneur on the podcast, uh, Josephine in Uganda, who, you know, mm -hmm. helps to empower and bootstrap communities and, and impoverished communities in Uganda to be self-sustaining. So to get back to Ecovative, I think that, um, you know, they're, they're a market-oriented, overtly capitalist enterprise if their recent $60 million financing round has anything to say about it. And yet they've also made their mycelium bricks, grow.bio and design process open source, even for commercial enterprises, which is not really in the capitalist playbook to like equip potential competitors with this knowledge. Of course, it's limited up to one ton, I believe. It has a shrink wrap license, but I think that's really cool, a place to come from where they want people to make things like mycelium lamps 
lamps and coffee tables, all kinds of imaginative stuff, and they want people to sell it using their proprietary technology. And I've also I've got some of these bricks back in San Diego waiting for me to put them into play. So do you think there's anything inherently misguided or off the mark about companies raking in tens of millions of dollars while replacing far more currently dangerous existing models of production and consumption? Hmm. I mean, I, I guess the only question is whether it will replace those um, those things because the the decision is going to be made by the market and not according to what's the most sustainable in an absolute sense. You know, it's going to be about uh, whether it catches on in an economically sustainable. <laughs> that's that's the sustainable uh, dimension that that will determine will it will it turn a profit? Yes. Okay. Then maybe it can um, take over enough of the market to to replace all you know, styrofoam or um, building materials that, that are currently, you know, unsustainably produced and, and end up contaminating our landscapes and replace them with something that's natural and decomposes, just turns into compost uh, if you if you get rid of it, but also is like fire resistant. And, you know, I, I don't like to criticize these companies because I think what they're inventing and what they're trying to promulgate is amazing. Like the stuff Ecovative has come up with is astonishing. And it's sort of the Tesla thing again, you know, like, you appeal to the top of the market. They made stuff open source too um, at Tesla. And, um, you know, I, I think that serves everybody's interest. It probably serves the company's interest because it, um, you know, in the case of Ecovative, I can only guess it to, as to their logic, but, um, you know, having more people practicing this thing, these, these technologies and developing them um, in an open source way, it certainly reflects the kind of, you know, mycelial attitude, you know, that I encountered in these other communities. Um, but it also raises awareness about their product and, you know, um, so I guess the question is like whether we're betting on, um, yeah, again, it's that reform or, you know, uh, cultivate alternatives, uh, question for me. Uh, I, I think that if you're trying to operate a company that's going to be profitable and you can, and you're going to be able to pay off your, uh, uh, employees and of course your shareholders, um, then you have to. Uh, play into the market. And I don't begrudge anybody doing that, but I question how far it can really go. Um, and I don't think that the people in, and I can't speak for anyone in, in at the heads of these companies, by the way, this is all just me observing as an outsider. Um, but my, my sense is that, you know, saving the world isn't like the, the, the driving um, interest, you know, I think they all recognize that like the limits of what the market can accomplish um, if we're trusting the market to save the world, I'd just question how it's done so far, you know, and, and what, what it's uh, accomplished so far as, as far as our ecologies are concerned and equity is concerned. Um, so I guess for me, like the project for me in this book was to elevate that, that, that part of the conversation, that, that skepticism, because, um, I think it's riding oftentimes on the back of these other conversations about sustainability and reciprocity. And I think that the two can work together, but I, I think in some ways they might be um, in conflict. And uh, I wanted to highlight that to some extent, um, not so much by criticizing the companies that are trying to do their best to get these admittedly incredible things uh, into the world, but, but more to elevate the, the, the principles of sustainability and, and locally bound activity and, and those, those sorts of things that to me are really inherent in learning about fungi and sort of observing how they move in the world and, and taking those values into our systems and, and you know society. Sure, and I think you highlighted that conversation very well. And it kind of comes back to uh, what you said about an unsustainable system is unsustainable. And I guess my kind of place I'm at right now is I'm like, well, are we just kind of doomed then? Because, you know, for all of this incredible thinking, which I support, you know, I lived in San Francisco for years and I, I live here in Zapatista country now. And I just, you know, I was party to a conversation yesterday where they kept talking about Amazon warehouse workers and that kind of being like the peak pinnacle capitalism and like, you know, people having to have a psychedelic experience and then go back to work in the Amazon warehouse. And I was like, yeah, but where's that going? Like, that's not going to disappear overnight is the problem that we're encountering. Like, there's obviously, I think everyone in their right mind should question a lot of these overtly capitalist narratives. And like, why do we have Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and the crew, you know, sitting at this table on Necker Island with Richard Branson? Like, that's not really what I want to see go forward as a planetary collective. But where's it going? You know, I kind of thinking that realistic snapshot of like, especially at the glacial pace with which politics and business and much moves policy. It's like, 
wow, where, 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 you know, I think it works on a micro level, like you can abdicate yourselves and like, you know, go to Costa Rica right. or go wherever and hopefully do it the right way, not do it in a neo-colonialist fashion, but like create your alternative society. But like as a planetary scale, I just think that we're basically mired and, and we're kind of, it's here at least for the next couple generations. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. We'll see. <laughs> so uh, I want to talk about patents for a second along these oh. same lines, drawing from this well. So I get this sense of Patents are evil from a number of people in the world of mycology and decolonization. And I think depending on where you're coming from, they can be super evil, right? Like there's been a lot of kind of bad PR for compass pathways. Um, and, and I think rightfully deserve criticism for their recent patent grab on things like holding hands, using soft right. furniture. Like that's inherently absurd and ridiculous to me. But Paul Stamets has several dozen patents and patents pending on all kinds of fungi-related innovation, yet he seems to be somehow immune from criticism in the public discourse at large, I see. Um, so example, I believe he holds a patent or on mycofiltration. I could be wrong about that, but um, yeah. I've seen quite a few things where I'm like, so the question is, are patents on naturally occurring processes and novel molecules inherently absurd and pretentious? Uh, you know, my gut tends to say yes, um, but I also recognize, again, that like IP capture is a, a phenomenon that people have to contend with. And like if you uh, invent something highly profitable um, or, or, you know, I, I hesitate to use words like discover, you know, they, again, because of this kind of colonial uh, baggage, but um, and especially when it pertains to natural processes. Um, but let's just say it, if you discover some natural process or, or capacity um, and that, that has a lot of profit potential and you don't protect it in some way, then someone else might come in and build a wall around it and regulate who gets to access it. And that just takes you right into the heart of the problem we've been talking about. So it, I think patents can be leveraged in the context of the world we've been describing to prevent that from happening. And, and, you know, I think that's how Paul Stamets has um, explained his motivations uh, with his, uh, I'm not clear on his patent record, but it's, it's apparently pretty extensive. And, and he talks about it a lot. You know, it's a, a key part of his like strategy to advance these technologies and these ideas. And, and he does get a lot of criticism for it, actually, certainly in the circles that I was um, running in. I'm I'm a little bit agnostic on it because you know because of this fuzzy stuff that we're talking about now, but um, yeah, I, I mean I guess it's a if you're living in the if you're living in a capitalist uh, system, then patents I don't think they're pretentious or useless. I think they can be leveraged in positive ways. But um, you know if that is if if on the other hand they're being done simply to corner a market, which I think is a lot of the criticism that Compass is getting. Um, you know, they've, they've secured the manufacturing of these uh, substances at, at huge scales, and they've started patenting these practices that, um, yeah, it, it's hard to imagine any other reason, at least for me, to, to safeguard those as IP other than to prevent other people from profiting off them. So um, I, see, I see a tension there, and, and I think, it's, uh, I think it's, it's healthy to criticize that stuff. I don't know how much we can really do about it. Um, once it's done, you know, and, and just to, to kind of give a more material dimension to that, you know, I, I visit the POC fungi community um, in the book in San Diego, or as they would call it, unceded Kumie territory, um, where the, the theme of the meeting was uh, medicine, and it was medicine in the, in this, in the psychedelic sense and, and in a kind of community healing sense. Um, but they were talking about how, you know, these, these medicines that many of them you might have gleaned from the name POC, many of them have like cultural ties to the use of entheogenic medicines, plant medicines, um, the stuff that was discovered in, you know, Huautla and uh, brought back to the US and, and, you know, became the basis of a lot of um, interesting products and experiments, mostly by white people, and then uh, became uh, criminalized, mostly to the detriment of people of color. Um, and now the people at the POC fungi community uh, at the cusp of, of the decriminalization, you know, becoming widespread and the, the normalization of these um, substances and therapy uh, in therapeutic contexts, they're saying, I don't know if I'll be able to do it. I, I don't know if I can afford a, a $500 session once, once these cent centers start opening up. And so, again, it gets to the, to the question of like, how much are we prioritizing scale over equity? And how much are we just perpetuating the same systems of inequity uh, that 
create the conditions that, again, we, we're hoping to solve. We, we're talking about medicine, uh, foods, uh, sorry, fungi as a means of getting food and medicine to everybody, you know, no matter where they live and of replacing unsustainable building practices and all of this stuff. But to do that, many of these organizations uh, and innovators are plugging right into the very system that created those inequities and unsustainable dynamics in the first place or are, are you know, maybe it's unfair to say they created them, but they certainly exemplify them in my mind. So um, that's that's kind of how I see the patent thing. I feel like if it's being leveraged to subvert that dynamic that I was just speaking to, I'm all in favor of it. But um, to the extent that it's just going to deepen the, the clause, you know, uh, I, I, I'm skeptical uh, at best. Fantastic. And I got a physical reaction when I read that part of your book. I was very warm, like the tingly, happy, euphoric rush because I'm from San Diego and I have inroads into the POC fungi community through various friends and whatnot. Right. I've been to the World Beat Center countless times. So when I saw that, I really lit up. I was like, woo woo, SD represent, what's up? So nice. let's talk about slime molds for a second. Oh, yeah. That was another thing that really blew my mind. And I want to kind of marry these two ideas of the border and the POC fungi community, et cetera, and slime molds. So for for the audience who may be unfamiliar, slime molds are individual, emergent individual parts that work together to exhibit complex unified behavior. That's sort of my takeaway from it. And in particular, you, you talk about, I think the project was called Plasmodium Consortium and is in Tokyo where there was some research to, to get these slime molds to redesign the Tokyo subway system, essentially using uh, biomimicry or natural intelligence as an urban planner. So what really blew my mind, Doug, is that slime molds are happiest with an open border policy, according to this research. Being born and raised 10 minutes from the San Diego-Tijuana <laughs> border, this is so vindicating and inspiring to me because our cross-border culture is one of the most beautiful symbiotic relationship dynamics on the planet for my money. Do you suppose there's a future for deferring to the gravity of natural intelligence and slime molds and in international relations? I love how you're framing that, yeah. Um, it's. Uh... I hope so. You know, I mean, I think that project and just to clarify the the Tokyo experiment was an older experiment that inspired the Plasmodium Consortium, which was based out of a Hampshire college in Massachusetts, a notoriously like liberal arts uh, experimental college where that sort of thing would fly. Um, and they, yeah, were posing all of these sort of social questions of social heft to a slime mold, which is an amoeba. It's actually not a fungus, you know, and, and so I had to kind of cheat to include that in the book, but it's often confused with fungi and, and was sort of classified as a fungal, you know, cousin for a long time, but um, they exhibit incredible optimization, uh, a knack for optimization, and they seem to, to have memory despite having no central nervous system or any center at all. They're, they're blobs. They're, they're at the Paris Zoo now, actually, and they're called Le Blob <laughs> over there. So um, <laughs> nice. not, not the sort of uh, organism one might think to consult about border policy, but that project, I think, was in large part about questioning our own uh, reaction to that sort of notion and, and the, the value or lack thereof that we place on non-human intelligence or uh, I've come to call this like human chauvinism. But um, as far as the border experiment was concerned, you know, they, well, first of all, this, this project was one of figuring out how do we consult non-human organisms uh, in our decision-making process and in our understanding of problems that we face that ultimately don't just, uh, affect us they affect environments and all of the organisms that we share the planet with and you know it's another example of how like thinking about some odd and, and un, unappreciated corner of the natural world brings you to a, a connected and holistic perspective that makes things like borders suddenly seem a little more questionable because in the context of this experiment they said okay how can we test the border policy with slime mold well we can take a petri dish and put a border in it and see how a uh, slime mold population, which is a fuzzy term in this case because they're amoeboids, you know, they're they're singular and multiple at once. Um, but we put a, a slime mold on one side and slime mold on the other, and we test whether uh, with a with an unequal you know distribution of resources, um, one side or the other does better with a border that's enforced consistently, so that nothing gets across or that's intermittently um, enforced so that they can get across occasionally, or that's totally open. And it's maybe unsurprising that if you've got resources and 
beings on other side uh, on either side of the divide, which tend to organize and optimize and distribute evenly, um, that they would both do better given no obstruction to the flow of resources and, and interactions. And you know, that's 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 what happened. Um it's it's almost like you're questioning the dynamic more than you're looking at the organism. You know, you're, you're questioning like how how good is it for either side of this petri dish that we call earth let's say or this continent um for there to be a uh, a dividing line that determines whether or not you can pass or whether or not needed resources can pass and i think there's something to that um you know i don't think it's really going to fly in most political discourse to bring up what the slime molds told us but um i think it's an example of the kinds of insights we can get into our own activities by uh, looking to beings that live and operate in ways that are pretty unfamiliar to us um but which no less nevertheless share the planet with us and with which we are connected in ways that we don't understand yet so um yeah the more i go down this path the less uh, you know uh, political traction i think it has but um i think there's something to that i agree wholeheartedly and i want to share sort of an open ended inquiry um I have spent a lot of time in northern Baja, California, and the Kumeyaay band of indigenous, the Kumeyaay tribe, has occupied this region of San Diego and northern Baja for upwards of 10,000 years. There's evidence of it. And the border was established in the 1850s. And essentially what happened, and a lot of people don't seem to really recognize this, is that it bisected the Kumeyaay people. So you have now, you have San Diego-based Kumeyaay who are um, beneficiaries of casino licenses. And there's, you know, the Kumeyaay and the Sequan band and different indigenous groups, they, they are big money. They occupy, you know, casino licenses. They sponsor the San Diego Padres, things like that. But just across the border, just a, a matter of a few miles, they still live in isolated bands and are essentially abjectly impoverished with little to no help from the Mexican government. So I've been, I actually took a group of high school students when I used to teach high school down to a Kumeyaay restaurant in Tecate, Baja, California. And it was a total like gray area, you know, like the parents signed the permission slips. I was like, we're just going to walk across. We're just going to eat, interview the chef and that's it. And I thought there's so much room to explore here about like this artificial boundary that was imposed essentially by imperialist forces in the 1850s that bisected 10,000 years worth of the Kumeyaay that lived there. So I don't really have any you know, closing thoughts on that, but I think it's something I personally feel more gravitated towards like exploring this because you know, I've been camping out in the desert there and just found petroglyphs from Kumeyaay and, and you can find them under rock faces and things like that. And wow. it's just truly a phenomenal situation over there that I think uh, maybe somebody needs to make a documentary about the border impacting the Kumeyaay or something. So shifting gears for a little bit, I got a Facebook ad for a psychedelic capitalism conference put on by the company Microdose. And of course, I'm sure they hear the conversations I'm having with people and this and that. The ad implores me to register and quote, join the ranks of the industry's brightest stars. And as you no doubt are aware, there are a ton of startups and, and heavyweights like Peter Thiel being one of them, Tim Ferriss, everyone in between who are eagerly attempting to monetize magic mushrooms and psilocybin and the psychedelic experience. What are some of your thoughts on psychedelic capitalism? I'm sure we can mm. draw from the well we already discussed, but it, it is a really nuanced and interesting conversation when you start to consider that, you know, I'm getting invited to this conference and they've got all these glossy promotional photos and I'm in, implored to join the ranks of the industry's <laughs> brightest stars. What are some of your thoughts on this? Well, first of all, congrats on being invited. That's, uh, <laughs> that's uh, an honor. I'm not going to um, go, Doug. I'm not yeah. going. Oh, okay. Well, you know, that's uh, and that that's just super cool. Um, and also, thank you for telling me about the Kumie border uh, situation because I, I wasn't aware of that. And that definitely adds an interesting dimension to that that whole scenario. I'm going to look into that. Um, but as far as psychedelic capitalism goes, yeah, we've, we've touched on some of the themes that are sort of resonant to me in that uh, discourse. Um, I, 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 at one level, I, I am concerned about how it's going to redound to access and equity, you know, especially for the communities that have traditionally been criminalized uh, in for participating in those practices. Um, and it also at a more, I guess, kind of visceral level to me seems uh, wrong to uh, demarcate and you know, profit from something that's natural. And that, um, and I, I, I put an asterisk there because I, I get kind of, I roll my eyes a little bit at the, it grows out of the ground, you know, it's natural thing. Like, I feel like that's a little reductive too, but at the end of the day, that is what happens. And, and the relationships our brains have to these 
substances is something that was formed through, you know, eons of evolution. And it speaks to something way more profound to me than just here's a market we can open up, you know, and here's a, you know, when we're talking, talking about innovations and, uh, you know, uh, markets in the context of something that represents an intimate connection between our brains and a mushroom that's growing out of a, a cow patty, you know, uh, it seems a little petty by comparison to my mind. Um, but you know, it's, it's plugged in the criminalization, the decriminalization, the profit motive, the, the, you know, all the aspects and all the possible moves are, are sort of laid out on the chessboard of the capitalist, like, you know, framework in which we're, uh, caught as we keep alluding to in this conversation. And so, you know, to the extent that the, the market is able to drive uh, efforts at decriminalization and create more opportunities for people to to accept these um, practices and and maybe find healing, you know, in necessary uh, you know, the, the therapeutic value um, from it. Then I'm all for whatever brings that about. The the role that I'm trying to play in that conversation or in, in the broader version of that conversation that doesn't just apply to psychedelics, but anything in this fungi space in this emerging mycos, you know, innovative space is, is to just kind of keep, keep in the mix, the, the, the realities of exploitation and, and, uh, uh, denial of access that, that are part and parcel of, of capitalism. You know, it's just, it's not even a value judgment. It's just sort of an observation of, of how it's played out in the world. And, um, I think if we get too caught up in the hype about what, you know, of imagining a world, you know, in which everybody's got access thanks to these beneficent companies, um, then I think we're sort of losing the plot about what's really happening and what, what, you know, if we want that kind of outcome, what we really need to do to get there. And I don't think it's a matter of, I mean, in the near term, it's probably a matter of, a matter of how we assess patents and how we assess, uh, yeah, the kind of culture we're, we're developing, um, the bro, tech bro kind of culture that we're talking about that's sort of insinuating itself into a space that has like, deep spiritual meaning, deep cultural import, obviously deep, you know, therapeutic value. We're talking about human, human issues here, not, not market issues. And I, I want to keep that part of the conversation in, in the mix. And, and so I guess that's the extent of what I'm comfortable kind of offering. Um, I can't speak to those interests, you know, on either side, really, because I'm, I don't identify as either. I certainly don't have any cultural connection to, you know, psychedelic mushrooms, I've, I've benefited from them and, and they've changed my life and that didn't happen thanks to any company. Um, but, uh, you know, as, if, if, if someone else does, then I'm, I'm happy for them. And I think that's great. Um, but I think it's also probably coming in the long term and at a larger scale at the expense of some other community, you know, that, uh, that we should keep in mind. Sure. And let's unpack a little further the delineation between legalization and decriminalization. Mm. I think that's a very important topic and one that has been resonant with me recently. And it's kind of nice too, to not have to plant your flag anywhere, you know, to be sort of a role of like observing and kind of creating a platform for these discussions and whatnot. But I'm curious if you have anything to offer as far as like, would you plant your flag in either a decriminalization camp or a legalization camp? Uh, well, I, I hate to give a disappointing answer, but it's not not something I, I think I feel comfortable. Yeah, really like taking a firm stand on. Um, I know that the the decriminalization discourse has has some complications to it as far as you know who who benefits again, and and also like what it really does to um, ameliorate the the criminalization the effects of criminalization and like uh, yeah, I, I feel like that's probably a conversation that someone else is much better equipped to uh, to unpack than I. Sure. If you have any leads, let me know. Yeah, I really want to, mm -hmm. you know, I want to learn more about this just for myself. And the way that I learn is by engaging in discourse like this and reading yeah. books and then unpacking them and whatnot. And to loop back to your book, I, I was very interested too in the section about mycology as a queer discipline and mm -hmm. that the scientific worldview tends to be binary, but mycology defies heteronormative statutes and occupies a sort of fluid dimension. And I believe I read that there are something like four times as many mycologists who identify as queer than in other areas of science. Do you suppose that heteronormative relationships are a societal construct and that closer study of nature and biomimicry and fungi, et cetera, could potentially collapse traditional binary value systems when it comes to relational agency? I mean, I, I agree with the premise for sure. Um, I think uh, as to its ability, you know, these 
these studies ability to change that, um, you know, situation. I, I don't know. I think they're helpful. And yeah, I don't think it's an accident that that ratio of um, non-binary identification among mycological sciences, is, you know, is the case. It, these are organisms that that can, you know, I mean, just at a, at a surface level, you could talk about how there are certain mushrooms that have like 23,000 mating pairs, you know, possible mating pairs, which is sort of the equivalent of sex uh, in, in fungi. Um, which one's the boy and which one's the girl, you know, like, I don't think that that framework applies uh, when you're looking at, at, at fungi or slime molds, which again are like individuals and multitudes. Um, and yeah, the, the act of mycological like research is certainly in the field. I, I spoke to Patty Kaishin, Dr. Uh, Patty Kaishin, who's a, a mycologist and who wrote a, a paper called uh, Mycology as a Queer Science. Or I think it actually ended up getting retitled uh, the, the Science Underground. Um, but I encourage anyone who's interested in this to look that up. Um, and she describes uh, how if you go out into the field as a, as a mycologist and you're out there with, say, a botanist, you instantly notice how different the modes of operation are and how the the botanist has a transect, you know, a line laid out through the uh, the forest that they will walk at a, a periodic rate and, and document, you know, according to, to set intervals. Whereas mycologists, I think she even said, like, roll out of bed, you know, whenever and just sort of wander. They go on what they call a timed wander in the woods. And that's that's not because they're lazy, but that's because their subjects are ephemeral and fickle and they pop up in unexpected ways and places. Um, they're not well known, they're understudied, um, certainly by comparison to plants. And, and there's a certain a funny kind of contrast there between just how the science is conducted and in one case, really rigorous uh, way. And in the other, not to say that this isn't rigorous, but it's, it's more uh, intuitional or, or based on intuition. And, and it's, it's like, I might find mushrooms if I go over there, you know, and so I think that there's some dynamics to the science of fungi, to fungi themselves, that uh, lead to a questioning of, um, and then also just identifying mushrooms. Like you, do, you know, the science is done with like a dichotomous key. It's called like dichotomous. You can go one of two paths as you try to determine what you're looking at or what you found. And uh, you know, genetics is is coming to reveal to us that mushrooms that look the same or look related actually took very different paths to get there through evolution. That's what they call convergent evolution. You get similar outcomes from different paths. It works the other way too. You get very different looking mushrooms that went through very similar paths that are closely related. And so it's these things, I think, and, and other aspects that I unpack in that chapter come together in, into a, a sense that, yeah, maybe in mycology, there are grounds for questioning bigger picture ideas that, that that seem to be based in nature. You know, a lot of the arguments around gender these days is like, well, the science tells us they're man and woman, you know, and I won't go into that. That's, that's a hot, a hot button issue for some people. Um, but I think this, this, you know, uh, undermines that argument. Like science shows us that there is uh, a spectrum of relation and, and um, that are, are systems that say like, you can get to the right outcome or the right answer by going one of two paths all along the way, uh, actually don't necessarily uh, reflect the reality. So I hope that uh, unpacks some of what you're talking about there. It absolutely does. And, you know, I'm coming to the end of my line of inquiry here because I have mm -hmm. a number of different talking points I'd love to touch on. I just, I think the book is so important and I wanted to reach mm -hmm. the audience it needs to reach. I think it's doing that. And uh, before we wrap up though, I feel like I didn't toss you too many softball questions today. <laughs> so I'm going to toss you a softball. Is there anything you're currently working on or writing or involved with that you want to promote and let us know about? Oh, well, I mean, I wish I had something to say about that other than just the book. <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm promoting for sure these days. Um, and in the meantime, yeah, it's it's unclear what I'll be doing next. I've got an idea for another book, but we'll see um, if that if that happens. Um, but really, yeah, I've I've honestly just been trying to in, in inculcate the values and lessons I've learned over the last couple of years working on this book into my my own life. And Part of that actually includes questioning what it is I do for a living and, and how I want to move in the world. So, um, you know, I've moved to the Hudson Valley of New York and I'm learning to ferment and preserve food. I'm going to be growing food for the first time in my life. Um, you know, obviously foraging for mushrooms and, uh, but I'm also going to be learning my trees and my, my, I've been learning my trees and my plants and 
you know, uh, I'll spin this very generous question into just an opportunity to sort of mention that, like, to me, the fungi are just the entree to a broader perspective shift and uh, change in behaviors and invitation to change the way that we kind of assess the world and our role in it. And I'm trying to to bring that part of it into my own life and to, you know, obviously in this very moment, uh, express it to others. Um, so, you know, the fungi are sort of not the point, you know, they, they're, they're, they're the, the lead into a broader conversation, much as they are in nature, like they're connected to everything, but they're not at the center of anything. You know, they are facilitators and they, they reveal connections to us. I think that, you know, if you want to learn about mushrooms, if you want to find them in the woods, you have to start learning about trees because they connect to trees and you have to start thinking about soil because they're integral to soil and they affect the microclimates. And, you know, once you're talking about land and its condition, then you're talking about, well, what kind of policies might have led to the land to be in this condition and what kind of government or, or uh, communities promoted and established these policies. And you're, you, you, to me, the path is pretty clear from sticking my nose into a log and looking for a mushroom to starting to talk about capitalism and our place in the world. And so, yeah, that's that uh, path is sort of the one I'm, I'm walking at the moment. But, uh, you know, hopefully I'm inviting other people to start down a similar one. Doug Birend, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Mycopreneur. I really enjoyed this discourse and looking forward to closely following your writing and, and your path that you're on. No, thank you. I really appreciated the questions. This was a great conversation. Thank you. Cool. Cheers, man. Enjoy the Hudson Valley. <laughs> Will do. There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many mycopreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up. At Mycopreneur Podcast, that's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Mycopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Mycopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Mycopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod? By all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode. And also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Mycopreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.